Welcome to the Hello Someday podcast, the podcast for busy women who are ready to drink less and live more. I'm Casey McGuire-Davidson, ex-red wine girl turned life coach, helping women create lives they love without alcohol. But it wasn't that long ago that I was anxious, overwhelmed, and drinking a bottle of wine a night to unwind. I thought that wine was the glue holding my life together, helping me cope with my kids, my stressful job, and my busy life. I didn't realize that my love affair with drinking was making me more anxious and less able to manage my responsibilities. In this podcast, my goal is to teach you the tried and true secrets of creating and living a life you don't want to escape from. Each week, I'll bring you tools, lessons, and conversations to help you drink less and live more. I'll teach you how to navigate our drinking-obsessed culture without a buzz, how to sit with your emotions when you're lonely or angry, frustrated or overwhelmed, how to self-soothe without a drink, and how to turn the decision to stop drinking from your worst-case scenario to the best decision of your life. I am so glad you're here. Now let's get started. Hey there. I've got some big news for you that I have been not so patiently waiting to tell you about. After six months away, my super popular, completely free masterclass is back and it's better than ever. I've been working on it for months. So if you have been struggling to get sober momentum, please go to hellosomedaycoaching.com forward slash class. You can sign up for my free training, Five Secrets to Taking a Break from Drinking, even if you've tried and failed in the past. In this 60-minute masterclass, I am going to share with you all the things you need to stop doing because they're setting you up for self-sabotage and what you need to start doing instead. I am giving you the steps and the mindset shifts that I go through every day with my private coaching clients, and it is completely free. So if you are sober curious, if you've been thinking about taking a break from alcohol, this class is going to set you up for success. I promise you it is worth your time. So hit pause on this episode, go to hellosomedaycoaching.com forward slash class and save your seat. Welcome to the podcast. This episode is about the dry life and specifically choosing a lifestyle, not a label. My guest today is Kayla Lyons, who is the 28 year old founder of 1000 Hours Dry and the host of the Dry Life podcast. She stopped drinking at 23 years old, which is incredibly young. I didn't stop till I was 40, so I am amazed and impressed. But Kayla, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. How are you today? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. I'm really excited to have this conversation because I think that your approach at A Thousand Hours Dry of being an alcohol-free lifestyle rather than a label of being in addiction or recovering from addiction, welcoming all people is really exciting. Yeah. I mean, I think because I came from a background where I originally did use the label, you know, I did get sober at 23. Like you said, I feel like when I say that it seems so long ago, right? It's like five years, but in the, in the sober and recovery space, that is a really long time because there's so much that has happened over the last five years in when it comes to, you know, uh, community availability, kind of just modernizing, you know, when I got sober five years ago, um, I went to treatment and when I was getting in trouble in school or even before that in high school, like it was always go to go to these alcohol classes. Right. Or then when you get older, oh, well, we recommend, you know, 12 step meetings. And so that was really the only thing that I was ever told that I could do besides, you know, go to therapy. And I was already doing that. So, mm-hmm. you know, that's what I did for about, uh, I'd say probably like two years and It's what I needed at the time. But then, you know, for me, I really grew out of it. And then I think especially as a young person in recovery, you know, I went to young people's meetings and stuff like that. But at the same time, I really, I didn't want to create a life that like 
was sobriety, sobriety, sobriety. And I, you know, then I get to do other things. So I got, I got sober because I wanted to have a real life. I didn't get sober so I could like live in the rooms and then kind of have a life outside. And I just felt like I couldn't get that from what I was doing. And so I kind of ventured outside of what was like, you know, now considered, you know, traditional recovery. And what I found was there's not a lot out there (laughs) for other people that, you know, are interested in doing the traditional 12 steps. And I knew there were people, but I didn't know how to find them, you know? So that's kind of what, you know, sparked my idea in starting the dry club and starting the thousand hours dry challenge, not very altruistic, right? Like I I really just wanted to find friends. Like I was like, crap, how do I meet, how do I meet other sober people that aren't necessarily affiliated with a 12 step program or, you know, people I knew in rehab. And that was like right at the beginning of the sober, like Instagram community, I can name, you know, like only a couple people that were really um, active back then. And then it started thriving. And now there's numerous communities and pages and influencers and groups. And it's just a really amazing what's happening. Um, And I'm really like excited to be a part of it. Yeah, I, I love that because I actually, so we quit drinking about the same time. I just hit five years a couple weeks ago. And when I first kind of was like, oh shit, I have a major issue with drinking and I might actually have to stop and fuck, this is my worst case scenario (laughs) was eight years ago. And so at that time I found some like secret private Facebook group where people were, you know, trying to go booze free. And that was huge for Mm -hmm. me. But when I first posted there and connected, you know, there really was only AA, maybe a couple other things, but AA was the main way. So, you know, a woman who lived in Seattle, I was in Seattle, she was around my age, you know, seemed to have very similar interests. You know, she was a lawyer, I worked in corporate, she was four months sober and going to AA. So she kind of was like, you want to come with me to a meeting? And I was like, well, bucket list, fuck it. Why not? You know, yeah, yeah. I never thought I'd do this. (laughs) So I went and I ended up going for about four months. But very similar to what you said, it wasn't, it wasn't the life I wanted to lead. You know, mm-hmm. a lot of people absolutely love AA, but the pressure there is keep coming back, right? Keep going, yeah. to, go to the meetings. If you drift away, it's, you know, super negative. And like you, I wanted, you know, I always say that not drinking is the foundation that allows me to yep. live the life I want to lead. It is not the end all be all of how I want to live my life every day. So I love that. In, you know, five years ago when I came back, AA wasn't my path um, because there was a lot more out there. So I love that, you know, a lot of people are adopting alcohol-free life, regardless of whether they have a really problematic relationship with drinking, which I did. I was like bottle of wine, bottle or half of wine a night, like 365 nights a year. But it is like, it's getting so much more normalized. Oh, yeah. I think it was something that I I don't want to say it was bound to happen, but I mean, history does repeat itself. And, you know, the millennial generation, my generation, Gen Z, I think we're a lot more conscious about what we're consuming. And sometimes we go overboard. (laughs) Um, Sometimes we're oversensitive. But I think there's a lot of good things coming out of the fact that we have so much access to information, the internet and technology, this you know, complete wave of availability for people to just get to know whatever they want to know, really, whenever they want to know it. Like we, your phone, your laptop, you know, like instant answers constantly. And so, you know, when I think about, you know, and not whenever I say 50 years ago, I keep thinking it's like 2000. Yeah. And I'm like, crap, it's 2021. Okay. Like doing the math in my head. I'm like, so really like 70 years ago, like, I always reference like the 1950s, like Mad Men, you know, everyone's smoking inside, everybody's drinking right in the morning. Like there's one scene in Mad where he's like, he puts like milk and whiskey together in the morning to like nourish his hangover. And I was like, that's fucking disgusting. Yeah. But I probably would have done it like, you know, what? no judgment. It's not that 
in the 1960s, people were stupid. They just weren't educated and they didn't have the same access that people in 2020 have to information. So, you know, nobody's going around smoking cigarettes and drinking 24 seven because like, oh, well, I know it's going to kill me, but I just enjoy it too much. You know, the information just wasn't there. And then, you know, in the 1970s, the anti-tobacco movement happened and, you know, it it took a, uh, a while. It didn't just happen overnight, but, you know, after a decade or so, people really started to stop smoking. This is where I feel like health, there's a healthy amount of shame. Like I'm not anti-shame because I think if you do shameful things, you should be shamed. But, you know, that's how we got rid of cigarettes, right? Like we took them out of, we took them out of everywhere. We, we made them less available. The warning labels are all over the place. Yes. And we just made it something undesirable because it, if you think about it, right, like it, it literally went from being this symbol of like, it's sexy. You do it after sex, you do it like before sex, everything around it is like, it's attractive. And now it's literally the opposite. Like when I know personally, like I don't smoke. And when I'm around it, like, I don't like it. I don't like the way it smells. And, you know, both my grandfathers, one had a heart attack very early from smoking. And my other grandfather just passed from COPD all over. It's all, you know, cigarettes, cigarettes, cigarettes. But when you've been doing it your entire life, you know, it's hard to change uh, your ways. And I think of it as, uh, trying to take people out of the matrix. Yeah. You know, after a certain age, you can't do it. So that's why I think for me, when people say, you know, what's your demographic with like the dry life and with, um, you know, with, with the alcohol free movement. And for me, I think, you know, it's really for everybody, but when I, when you have a target audience, right. You can't necessarily aim for everybody because, you know, speaking to somebody who's 60 years old and speaking to somebody who's 25 years old, they're going to have totally different priorities, interests, you know, lifestyles. And so we chose to really kind of uh, hit the like 25 to 45 range because that I think is still when people are finding themselves, figuring themselves out and you're still readily able to make a lot of life changes and it's not as difficult. Like you're not so super stuck into your ways. Yeah. And you have a lot to lose, right? Like I know, like I'm 28, I still have a ton of life to be had, but that was one thing that really scared me. And I think why I chose sobriety is, you know, I was really in a bad place. Like, you know, it takes a lot of people a lot of time. Sometimes like I had no progression. My drinking started off bad and ended bad. Like there was no middle ground or there was no point at where I was like, Oh, you know, I didn't have a problem. Like I started with a problem and ended with a problem. So it was easier for me, I think, to know from the beginning that this was never something that was going to work out long-term kind of when you get into a bad relationship and you're just like, you know, this is really fun and it's dangerous, but this is not who I'm going to marry. This is not, you know, who I'm going to end up with. And I always knew that about alcohol, but I'm like, I'm a very gritty person and that's sometimes bad because I just don't give up on things until I absolutely have to. And that's kind of that lull between 16 and and 23 when I was drinking, which isn't a long amount of, you know, time. Like I go into their rooms and people were like, like just, they wouldn't, they basically would say like, well, you haven't really been drinking long enough to know that you have a problem or you're too young to know, you know, like you haven't even really started and stuff. And it's like, why would you ever tell somebody that who's trying to get sober? Like it shouldn't matter. That's that the whole idea of qualifying really bothered me. I would think that it's amazing and they would be so, you know, celebrating that you're discovering it so young. But I guess in the rooms, there is such an emphasis on on talking about your bottom and sort of constantly reminding yourself and others about where drinking brings you, which is very true. But I also love the fact that so many more people and I, I see on the Thousand Hours Dry Instagram page every day, people are really celebrating all the wonderful things about living life without alcohol. 
and how good it is versus the, you know, sort of fear-based negative reminders that, you know, quote unquote, you're an alcoholic and you have a disease and, you know, other people may be able to drink, but you cannot. Yeah. I understood that the fear-based model works for some people, but I think in general it does not. And it's been proven that it doesn't work, right? Punishment overall doesn't work. That's what builds resentment. That's what builds, you know, like a bad cycle. Rebellion even. Totally, totally. I know when somebody tells me what to do, I'm like, fuck you. I'm going to do the opposite even if I don't want to. But kind of, you know, why, why I stayed in in the program was a, you know, parts of it did speak to me. Like, you know, I tell people all the time, like AA was a big part of my foundation. I needed at the time I needed the community. I needed the support and I needed a lot of the principles that they have to offer. And that's why it was really important for me to bring some of those principles to the dry club and have principles because, you know, like you said, being alcohol free or being abstinent or sober, you know, whatever your drug of choice is, that's the first step is to stop using. But then after that, like you can't just not use that's white knuckling it, you're not going to recover, you're just going to be miserable. And you might even be a worse person (laughs) because you're not using. And so, you know, I loved the whole idea of, you know, having commitments and, being of service to the community that like still to this day, like for me, that's my number one give back is like, how can I be of service to others in recovery today? Mm -hmm. And, but what kind of freaked me out in a good way was noticing that, you know, like so many people in the rooms had lost so much, you know, like they'd come in and they'd lost their families. They'd lost all their friends. They'd lost their job. And I saw my future really, you know, because I was not a gray area drinker. I was, you know, like we had talked about before, you know, I was drinking, I was bringing vodka to class. I was drinking and driving. I was getting arrested. You know, I was getting hospitalized. Like there was really no chill. Um, And so, you know, even though I, didn't lose anything. The thing was at the time, I didn't have anything to lose, right? I'm like 21. Mm. I'm in college. I'm in this bubble that I think, you know, I'm not in the real world yet. I don't have a family. I don't have, you know, really anything. I don't have a house. I don't have a job. And so the consequences that did come were like, okay, you're getting suspended from school, but I didn't take it seriously, you know, or even then back then they, they had us on the honor system, for community service. And I'm like, why would you trust me? I'm a criminal. And I would, I would (laughs) like, you know, they, they would make us like go pick up trash. And, you know, I just use that as an opportunity to meet other, other, you know, people doing bad shit and make friends. And, um, I would throw parties instead and just use all the beer cans and fill up the trash can. They would give us trash bags that we were supposed to fill up and leave in certain places. <laughs> you would drink and then yeah, fill up the trash exactly. can. With the, I, oh my gosh. I just throw parties and use that. And, and so like, you know, I was living and a lot of it was privilege, right? Like I am a cisgendered yeah. white woman and I was living at the time, like I was living in these predominantly white areas. And so I like in the time, like probably where I was getting in trouble the most and the where the worst of it was was in college, which was in Blacksburg, Virginia, which is up in the Appalachians. And I mean, I got I've been arrested for assault twice. Um, I was hospitalized and like fifty one fifty against you know like I did not comply um, twice. Yeah, and I never went to jail. You know, I, I would get the drunk tank or I would get like the suit. I would never actually get the drunk tank. I would actually always be put in like the suicide room. So I'd be in like the little (laughs) glass room away from everybody else because they were like, this bitch is fucking crazy. And, you know, I just, I was on probation for like five years, like straight, just straight fucking probation for five years, taking anger management classes. The judge was always like really like lenient, you know, and it clearly didn't do me a service because I kept going. And then I ended up going to treatment because it was court ordered because finally, before I had left school, I was on probation. I assaulted my boyfriend at the time. Then I called the cops on myself because, you know, (laughs) you know, just totally 
you know, I think internally I like just really wanted to stop, but I didn't know how. Yeah. Um, and finally, like, you know, I have the same judge this whole time, the same probation officer, the same lawyer. And they were like, all right, well, like you can either, we're giving you this option. You can go to treatment or you can go to jail for three months. And I was like, okay, I'm not going to jail. So I'll go to treatment, whatever. Um, and that's kind of when I think my actual sober curious journey began because up mm. until then, I never really took it seriously. I just always kind of wore it as this like badge of honor. Like I think a lot of college kids do because there's all these like Instagram accounts, like barstool sports and stuff that like really they're posting all these videos of people being, you know, blasted or they're breaking stuff or they're just doing crazy things. And it's, it's getting, it's like escalating. It's like, how crazy can we get? Yeah. And it scares me because if I was still drinking, I'd probably think a lot of that stuff was still really funny, you know, but now. Yeah. I mean, I loved college, but I played rugby, women's rugby in college. And so on the rugby team, you know, you may know, but like it, you play the game and then you party with the other team and it is keg stands and shoot the boot, like chugging races. And we used to do keg runs where you run after a car and then whenever the car stops, you drink. And it was, I mean, absolutely dangerous drinking. You know, I was still going to classes and getting A's and all this stuff yeah. despite doing this, but it definitely normalized hugely problematic drinking. And in my college, they had some Paul Newman day where everybody on campus was supposed to drink 24 beers in 24 hours. So you start in the morning in the shower. And so, I mean, I think unlike cigarettes, like you were talking about before, drinking is still sort of, you're right back in the 1950s where every TV show, every movie, every social gathering, like it's glamorized everywhere in the same way that it used to be for cigarettes with all the stars smoking and, you know, sophisticated women smoking and it being the thing to do. So I totally relate to what you're saying. And one of the things I've noticed on a thousand hour dry, your, your community is there is more accessible education about the dangers of alcohol than I see in a lot of other places in really quick, like digestible format, but, but facts. Yeah. I just, I thought about my own journey and I thought about, you know, I, I was, I'm in and out of college right now too. Like I graduated high school in 2010 and I've been kind of in and out of college since then. And right now studying consumer psychology, you know, and psychology has always been super fascinating to me, probably because I've been in therapy since I was like eight. And so, you know, we always kind of end up, you know, floating towards things that are familiar, right? But a lot of what I learned in consumer psychology is, you know, like I also have a background in marketing. That's what I went and studied at Virginia Tech Communications. And so I'm always learning and, and thinking about how to market things to people, but in an ethical way, right? Because this is like that's yeah. the problem. For me, one of the big problems with big alcohol is that they they passed their, you know, the boundary of ethical marketing long ago. But with a thousand hours dry, you know, in a way, everything's propaganda, right? Like I I just actually finished this book called Propaganda. And it was it's from like the 1930s, but it's written by Edward Bernays, who's like the founder of public relations. And propaganda nowadays is kind of like a dirty word, but the way I'm going to use it is the actual meaning, which just means like to promote something like Mm -hmm. based on like the evidence that you're giving. Like, so now propaganda is kind of used, you know, like in a bad way, in a negative way. But what I'm doing is like, I'm propagating the alcohol free lifestyle and I'm just giving the facts, you know? And because like you said, in a lot of traditional recovery programs, people scare you into being sober you know, you're kind of reminded on the daily, well, this is going to happen to you if you don't get sober. Let's, let's always talk about how bad things were. And sure that works in the beginning, I think a little bit, you know, when you're really in a bad place and you're like, fuck, I really never want to go back there. But then when things start to get better, you forget really quickly how bad things were. 
And, you know, I'm not staying sober for the same reasons now at five years that I was staying sober for the first year or the second year, you know, like my reasons are always evolving. And so one thing I really thought was important was to educate people on the the benefits of the alcohol-free lifestyle rather than the negatives. Like you said, the negative, you know, behavioral psychology aspect, like this new wave of positive psychology, which really came and became popular in the nineties. Um, I wanted to harness that because I knew, you know, most of us, I think with substance abuse, you know, have probably dealt with bouts of mental illness or hardships, you know, when we're used to having a lot of negative thoughts or being called negative things or, you know, just coming from a really negative perspective. So I was like, okay, well, how can we shift the perspective? And so this is not like this punishment, right? Like, cause I knew when I was 23 and I was told, you know, like you have to, you have to be sober. It's like, fuck, this sucks. Why, why me? Why am I out of all the people that I know? Like, why am I this way? Why do I have to quit? And it was such this negative you know, outlook, like I was giving something up. When nobody's showing you that life is really good without alcohol, right? All your, you know, if you surround yourself with drinkers and everything you do is drinking based, you have no imagination. You can't even picture what life will be like without alcohol. It's all about deprivation and isolation. And what you're showing is that not drinking can living alcohol free can be really freeing and cool and adventurous and optimistic and, you know, sort of not this, you're in such a dark place, therefore you can't do this, but rather there's sunshine on the other side. And don't you want to see what that feels like to even people who don't sink, you know, low enough that they're like, oh God, I need to enter a program. Yeah. I mean, because here's, my thought, right? Like, I feel like we've been kind of duped. Like, I feel like big alcohol and, you know, Hollywood. And, you know, I get very like, it sounds almost like conspiracy theory, right? But it, it, but it is, you know, like we're, we're targeted. And I also like, when I talk about this, I, I really feel like I'm talking about like America because I know other countries are, some are worse, some are better. Um, but, you know, a lot of my research is, stemmed in like American society. Cause that's where I'm from. That's where, you know, I live, but I, I feel like, you know, we're targeted from the beginning, you know? Um, and we're yeah. brainwashed. Totally. I feel like we're brainwashed. Yeah. And, and you really believe that this is ingrained in society. You need this to be part of your life in order to have social situations in order to have fun. I mean, it's really paired with everything, you know, like when I, when I talk about people or one thing that they always almost always ask me is like, well, what about like your wedding day? Like, are you going to have a glass of champagne? I'm like, why is that like so relevant? You know, why is this like, why are these, these exciting moments that we're supposed to be having in our lives, these big moments, everything's paired with alcohol, like prom night, uh, you know, graduation, you know, getting a new yeah. house, like, and you think of like, everyone's gifting everybody alcohol all the time. Like, it's just, it's literally yes. everywhere. And so from a marketing perspective, it's like, this is fucking genius. How do they do this? They've literally got yeah. to everybody. But then part of it is also uh, sober people feeding into the idea that like, this is a punishment. We have to live so differently. We're so outside of everything. We have to be anonymous because it's so different. Um, And I I think, you know, a hundred years ago, sure. You know, like definitely when there was a lot of stigma against a lot of things, then yeah, I think, you know, being anonymous was probably necessary or even now, like for some professions, you know, like, I don't know how comfortable I'd feel seeing my psychiatrist in an AA meeting. I might be like, whoa, hey girl, like uh, you prescribing my medication. Um, (laughs) And, you know, so there, there is, I totally get how anonymity is important for certain people or for certain professions, but in general, uh, you know, how are we supposed to find each other? How are we supposed to destigmatize something if nobody knows who you are or what, what your life's like, you know, now that you've gotten sober, unless you agree to be in the fold, you know, and do all the rules. And so, 
I kind of yeah. thought, well, like let's make a version of this that's like way more accessible, that's not so exclusive, that's not so intense, not because people don't need intense, you know, but because there are so many people who don't necessarily, you know, uh, vibe uh, with with labeling themselves or need to be in recovery, right? Because not everybody has a substance abuse disorder, like you said, and there wasn't really a place for them. You know, what, what do we do with all the people who come to the rooms of, of AA and they're like, well, you know, you're not really bad enough or, you know, come back Mm -hmm. in 10 years when you've lost everything. And then what, what happens to those people, you know, or what happens to people who, who stay or people like me, you know, who, who would never have both feet in, you know, I, I was always kind of led to believe that people like me would fall off and die or relapse or, you know, jails, institutions, and deaths. That's literally what they tell you. Mm -hmm. Um, yes. And so that's really what I thought. And I was afraid of leaving until I finally heard somebody speak at a meeting once. And it was really honest. It was a young people's meeting. It was like 11 at night. And this guy probably like my age he was like, yeah, you know, I'm, you know, I'm being here because, you know, a friend asked me to, and it was like a last minute speaker change. Um, I don't really come to these meetings anymore. Um, and he was just super honest, his whole share. Um, he talked about, you know, I was atheist before and how basically he, his sobriety led him to at the time, like three years sobriety. And now he's Buddhist and that's what he uses to stay sober. And, you know, it like shook me. And I was like, oh my God, this dude doesn't even come here anymore. He's just doing this as a favor. I can leave. And, and I kind of yes. walked out of that meeting with a lot of confidence and the thought that like, all right, mm-hmm. there's other ways to do this that are actually going to work for me um, because it wasn't really working for me anymore. Right. And if somebody, something's not working for you, then you need to find something that does like, it doesn't mean it can't work for you at a time, but I really believe in the evolution and the transformation of a person. And so if you are transforming, you are evolving, then you you shouldn't necessarily be doing the same thing for 10 years, you know, in my mind. Um, and so. Well, and also you don't have to be, you know, quote unquote, that yeah. bad to decide that it's not working for you or it's not healthy or it's dragging you down or keeping you stuck or sort of operating at half power. And I feel like, if the choice is nothing or AA or 12 step, there are a lot of people, if they don't know anyone who's sober, if they don't see life alcohol free being celebrated, like it is on Instagram and other places where everybody's just posting their pictures and, you know, hashtag sober life and hashtag alcohol free and all this stuff, then people are like, oh, dude, I can, you know, I like her. She's cool. She's healthy. That's super interesting. I want to go do that. And I don't need to drink. Yeah. I, it's just, I think it's breaking down. Like I, I kind of always use the same uh, metaphors, right? But I think people really understand metaphors better sometimes. It's really, I'm, you know, you're taking people out of the matrix essentially, like, you know, um, yeah. and you're just letting people know, like, hey, I, I know you believed this, um, but actually you can live an alcohol-free lifestyle and, and enjoy your life and have everything you wanted, you know, um, and still go and be social and hang out with your friends who drink and do everything pretty much the exact same, you know, but transforming internally and then, you know, getting rid of the things in your life that you don't need and that don't serve you. But celebrating that and really, like you said, just letting people know uh, that drinking isn't good for anybody. Like we're not because that was one thing that was, you know, kind of taught is to stay in your own lane um, and not worry about other people's drinking. And I think for sure, like you can't make other people get sober. Like, you know, I've tried. I've dated other addicts. Like when it comes to that, like it's true. But you can educate other people. Um, and it's not that, you know, we're not giving unsolicited opinions, you know, people come to our, our page for information, like you said. And so being available and being a resource and letting people know, you know, it, it does give you cancer and it's not just people who drink every day, you know, it's, it's somebody who seemingly drinks, you know, quote unquote average 
or um, moderately, you know, like uh, Muna posted today, you know, uh, a woman who drinks, she said, what, three times a week uh, is 15% more likely or 15% at higher risk of breast cancer than somebody who doesn't drink. And to me, it's information like that, that has nothing to do with recovery, you know, because Well, and back in the day, I didn't even know that the reason I woke up at 3am every night was not because I had insomnia, Mm -hmm. was because I was drinking. And that was, you know, a physical effect that I didn't even realize, you know, with your heart pounding and the anxiety and not being able to fall asleep again till four or five in the morning. I didn't realize that association or I didn't even realize like, the reason I was having increasing anxiety and panic and all the things was actually because of my drinking. And that sounds incredibly naive now, I realize as I say it out loud. But when I was 27, 28, you know, I thought the wine was helping me. I thought it was what I did to relax. And I think the more people who speak openly, because none of my friends knew that either, um, that, hey, alcohol is the cause of a lot of the negative shit you're feeling physically, mentally, emotionally, it's not actually the solution and everything you've been taught or told or modeled about alcohol helping you relax. It's bullshit. It's marketing. Yeah. And it, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, right? Like I was just listening to a really good podcast yesterday about hindsight and about how it's so easy for us to be in a place like, you know, how we are now and look back and piece things together and be like, well, it was so obvious. Why didn't I see it? Or like you said, you know, now it, it seems you know, well, obviously I was getting panic attacks and anxiety and, you know, all these words we use now, but when you're in it, of course, these things don't seem obvious. And when you're not, if you're not following a bunch of sober influencers, you know, this information is not readily available anywhere. You know, it's not being advertised on TV. It's not being advertised, you know, anywhere. Um, And so really being loud about it and just word of mouth, you know, that's how we're having to do it right now. It's very, you know, kind of guerrilla marketing on our, on our side. But the thing is, you know, people are catching on and we know that because, you know, a, the press is talking about it. Um, and B the biggest sign to me is that big alcohol itself is now starting to create these, you know, zero proof versions of their beverages. Oh my God. I, I love that. I mean, we should talk about this because I, you know, I know, especially in AA, but in other things, there's a lot of stigma around non-alcoholic beers or, you know, there's non-alcoholic Prosecco or mocktail, you know, slippery slope. I personally love the birth, you know, O'Doul's in my opinion. Is yes. crap. So like, I love athletic brewing company. I mean, I like order that shit. Cause I'm like, I am not running out or like groovy Prosecco or bubbly Rose. I mean, zero alcohol tastes amazing, you know, models, the celebration stuff. So what's your take on mocktails and non-alcoholic beer and all those things? So I'm really for them. You know, I think it's a newer resource. So it's something that just like anything else, like you have to do what you're comfortable with. Like I'll tell people all the time, you know, I, I was, I think I had over three years sobriety before I ever tried my first non-alcoholic beer. And I'm, I, you know, I think it was starting to get available before then, you know, I'd heard people, um, drinking, you know, kind of the, the smaller business beers or O'Doul's and things like that. But I think I had, I still, to this day, you know, I have a lot of unlearning to do from what I learned in more traditional programming and in, um, you know, in treatment and stuff. Um, but as I saw more people, trying it. And really I tried it for the first time. Like I went out with a friend, somebody who I trusted, somebody who had also had, um, like his own recovery path. And, you know, like I knew, you know, I really want to try this, but I want to be, um, with somebody that I feel comfortable with in case for some reason I do feel triggered or something does happen, you know? So it was a very conscious decision. And I thought about it for a little while first. Um, and then I had it and it really was, not a triggering experience at all. It really, if anything, it kind of took away some of that FOMO that I still had a lot of, even when I was out with friends, right? Because, you know, 
nobody at the end of the day, sure. Nobody really cares what you're drinking. You know, I, I don't know. I, I can't think of the last, you know, gathering that I was at when someone was like, what, what was your, what was your friend drinking? I don't fucking know, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but we have that whole spotlight effect of like, everyone's going to know we're not drinking or I'm so uncomfortable going to this event. Or I'm just going to have water. Yeah. Like I used to go to my husband's like gala events and it would be, I'd be like, oh, I don't drink. What do you have? And they're like, club soda, cranberry juice. And I was like, are you fucking kidding me? You have, you know, racks of wine. We paid a ton of money to be here. Like this is. Yeah, exactly. So like just that, like, oh, there's nothing for you. Like the fact that now there is. It's, it's, it's definitely in, it was a exclusion, right? And nobody likes to feel excluded, like even the other night. And like, I know it's funny because I never felt that way before because it wasn't available. And so it was just how it was. Um, and I was pretty happy with, you know, like the, like you said, club soda and lime, whatever. Um, but then it became more available. And now when I go out to restaurants and they don't have options, I bitch, like I'm, I'm such a Karen. Um, literally I got, (laughs) well, you can always get like, like I love mojitos, like no mojitos with no alcohol in it or, or, um, you know, just anything, you know, ginger beer is always great, but I mean, I think the fa- I I saw like a Heineken Zero commercial during the yeah. Super Bowl, and I was like, that yes. like those commercials are fucking. Expensive. Oh, totally. I saw a lot of beer commercials too, but it was awesome. And I, my husband and I went to Amsterdam a year and a half ago, and non-alcoholic beer is everywhere there. I mean, it's it's normalized, and it was obviously beer is a huge culture too, but. Um, you know, every restaurant, they had it prominently in on the menu, it was really good. And we actually went to my cousin's house where my cousin's the same age with her husband. And they had non alcoholic beer in their fridge just stocked, they didn't know that I'd quit drinking. Um, And they were like, Oh, yeah, we just keep it around because sometimes we want a beer, but sometimes we just want the taste, but without any alcohol to get fuzzy. And I was like, holy shit, like, I can't imagine drinkers just generally here stocking non-alcoholic beer if they don't feel like dealing with the impacts of alcohol. Yeah. No, Europe is, is very ahead of us in this way, especially like the UK, but even in like in Spain, I forget, I'll have to like, I'll have to give a source later, but I was reading an article where they said like 30% of their beer sales are non-alcoholic beer, like in Spain, which is, you know, you think about that here, you're like, oh my God, that's crazy. But you know, these are other cultures that also live a lot more like they, they consume much more consciously than we do. Right. You know, they're not morbidly obese. They're, they're just a lot more conscious of what they put in their bodies. Like not with smoking, that's still really heavy over in Europe, but yeah. when it comes to like food consumption, I think, um, and beverage consumption, um, they're a lot healthier than we are. Well, and framing not drinking here increasingly as just a health choice. Yes as similar to deciding to be a vegetarian or a vegan, or even deciding to buck a lot, you know, deciding to run a marathon is something you've decided to do, which is a new endeavor that requires time and training and learning and everything else, but it's a choice you're making. I think that it helps. Like that's what's framed it for me. And one of the things I definitely wanted to talk to you about, because it feeds into this idea of adopting a lifestyle, not a label. And that's not to say that you didn't have, and I had a problematic relationship with drinking where it was leading us nowhere good and definitely addicted and and all the things. But we talked earlier about the fact that, you know, assigning yourself a label as an alcoholic or, you know, an addict versus saying, you know, I no longer drink and this is my identity as a non-drinker is is similar to the fixed mindset versus the growth yeah. mindset. And so tell me about that because I think that's really interesting. Yeah. So I honestly this was more of a recent discovery for me after I read the book literally called Mindset. Um by Carol uh Carol Dweck. Basically what she says is that there are two different mindsets. Um, you have a fixed mindset and you have a growth mindset and you don't have to necessarily be like 
one or the other. Like everybody kind of has a little bit of both, you know, depending on what maybe the topic is. But essentially, the uh, fixed mindset is more of when you believe that you have fixed traits, um, that we're kind of we're born as we are, we're born with the character defects and the, and you know our personalities and our talents. And you can't really change who you are fundamentally. Um, you just kind of are stuck with what you have and you got to, you know, if you're good at something, you're good at something. If you're not, you're not. Um, and that is one mindset. And the other is growth mindset, which is the mindset that, you know, everything is learnable. Everything is teachable. You know, I'm not saying that we can all go and, you know, swim like Michael Phelps, but if you're not good at swimming, you can become better, you know? And so what I found really interesting was about this book that I'm, I'm almost done with. I think a lot of, a lot of what I've been applying to the dry club has been a lot of trying to teach people the growth mindset, because I think so many of us, I think we're more naturally inclined to think about fixed mindset because that's kind of what our our culture our our culture perpetuates you know that like the way that we're talked to you're so talented you're you're you were born a star you're so intellectual you know and really that's how we're talked to you like I know I was thinking about how I grew up and how I was spoken to and and what I thought um I was good at right like I, I was always told like you are so smart you are so pretty you are so this and then you really come to believe that this is what I am. This is this identifies me, right? Um, and then if I'm not good at it, then I must just suck at it. And so I'm the kind of person, and I'm trying to. I'm, this is where I'm in a fixed mindset, and I'm trying to grow. Um, I when I'm not good at something, I just don't do it. So if if it's a sport, oh my god! As a mom, there are yeah. all these studies out there that came out a couple years ago, and it really impacted how I mm-hmm. parent. But the idea that you should not say to your children, you're so good at math, because it actually inhibits them from taking harder classes, because yeah. they don't want, they're like, fuck, I'm good at math. I don't want to fail at math. If I don't do well, if I have to learn, this will prove that I am not this thing that I'm getting positive reinforcement for being. Yeah. And so it actually keeps them you know, not trying harder because they don't want to fail as opposed to if you tell your children, I'm so proud at how hard you're working and how how much you challenge yourself and, you know, how much you take risks. They're actually more likely to sort of soar higher in any area than if you say you're so good at math, then they're like, I don't want to disprove this theory because it's something that I'm getting positive reinforcement for. Yeah. And that's exactly what it is, right? Language is so important. Like neuro-linguistics, like we grow up with it. That's, you know, what we're told when we're young really shapes us as individuals. And, but the thing is, right, like neuroplasticity is real. The growth mindset is real. So you can change that. And by changing our one thing, you know, by changing our language, that's really important. So that was one reason why, when I chose to start the dry club, I chose to change the language. You know, nobody really was, we kind of came up with the term AF because AF was already obviously used for something else. But I was like, well, you know. Yeah, I always think whenever I see like sober AF, I'm always like sober. sober. Yeah. Like that's immediately what, but I love it. And so it was kind of, you know, I was like, well, A, we're only talking about alcohol, right? So technically, you know, we're not worried about if you're using THC. So the word sober in itself usually is talking about somebody who is, you know, sober from all substances, clean and sober. Um, So I was like, I don't want to get super technical, but let's just stick with alcohol free because that's literally what we're doing. And it also takes away from like the recovery language. So we try and use different language and things are that are not identity labels, you know, like I am alcohol free is not an identity label. It's just like, I am lactose free. You know, these are things. Yeah. It's the lifestyle. you're exactly. leading. It, it kind of describes what I'm doing. Like you said, it describes my lifestyle, but it doesn't define who I am the same way that I am an alcoholic yeah. does where it puts this, you know, the labeling theory, which is when you label something, um, especially in a negative way, you're probably more likely to 
continue to do those negative behaviors or go back to them because you really think that innately you are that, you know, when you tell a kid you're bad or you're, you know, you're stupid, um, they really start to believe that. And so I, I thought the idea of saying, you know, I am an alcoholic, although it works for some people, for me, I just see it more negatively because if I, if I haven't picked up a drink in a long time, or if I haven't had any maladaptive alcoholic behaviors in five years, you know, am I an alcoholic still, you know? Um, oh my God. I love that. People are always like, well, do you, you know, when I'm like, I quit drinking people I used to work with, they'd be like, oh, do you have a problem? And, you know, I would just think in my mind, like, no, I haven't had a fucking drink in five years. I don't have a problem. I saw you drunk yeah. in, like three do nights, you, have a problem? you know, so <laughs> It's that, well, it's just like, I'm, I haven't had a drink in five years. Like, no, right now I have zero problem with alcohol because yeah. I don't consume it. Um, but it's, it's again, that like, that belief that you will always have a problem. Right. And that in no way means that I think I should ever drink yeah. again. Cause I, I, I put my hand on that hot stove enough mm. to know I'm going to get burned. So why the hell would I do totally. it? Totally. But like, yeah, that label that you are, once you have, you know, once you decide that alcohol isn't working in your life, and by the way, it's addictive, and it's working as designed, pulling you down that hole, you don't have to carry around that label anymore. If you say, I'm living alcohol free, I quit drinking, I'm super proud of it, you know, yeah, it's a healthy choice. And it just doesn't make sense. Like when you, you know, when I think of other parallel addictions, um, because they are parallel, right? And a lot of people don't see it that way, but I learned from the biology of desire, which is such a good book, um, that, you know, eating disorders, um, substance abuse disorders, gambling addiction, sex addiction, these are all very parallel. You know, it's the same it's, it's the same swimming lane to me, you know, like it might be a little, it's a different lane, but we're all going the same path. We're doing it for the same reasons. You know, we're feeding the same, you know, neurotransmitters and, and stuff. And so when I think about my friends who are, you know, recover from eating disorders, I don't know one of them who's like, yeah, I'm bulimic, but I don't throw up anymore, but I'm a bulimic or I'm anorexic, even mm -hmm. though I eat now, you're like, okay, well, you used to be anorexic you know, or you used to have anorexia, or, yeah. um, you know, why are, why are alcoholics the only one who like claim this label and then stick with it even when we're not drinking or using anymore? It just doesn't make sense. Or it's like smoking, right? People who quit smoking don't sit around for the rest of their, their lives saying, yeah, I was addicted to cigarettes and I quit, but I'm a nicotineaholic or whatever. They just, they're like, yeah, I used to smoke a pack a day and I quit. And everybody's like, good on you. That shit, that shit will kill yeah. you. You know, oh, yeah. like way to go, man. That, that must've been hard. You know? Yeah. I mean, I remember when I told my psychiatrist that I was leaving AA because I, I literally, I think I saw her when I was like three days sober and I've had the same psychiatrist since then. She was like, oh good. You know, I've done so much work in the past five years, cognitive behavioral therapy, dialectical behavioral therapy, psychoanalysis, medication, you know, and then there's all the self-work that you have to do, getting into practices of, of meditation, of exercising, of doing self-care, really, you know, like building your own foundation and, and, and structure and changing the way that you do things because I find that addictions are parallel. So you have to always be vigilant if you are somebody who had any sort of addictive behavior because I've seen people go from one thing to another. The purpose was no longer what it served before, which was, you know, as a coping mechanism versus what I do use as a coping mechanism now is like exercising. And what I've really realized in the last six months is that I've really been over exercising and as a form of self-punishment, as a form of control, um, and as a part of my like OCD and my perfectionism, and that's manifested because I've, uh, now sprained my foot twice. And so, you know, the thought behind, well, I'm not an alcoholic anymore, or I don't use alcohol. That's no longer my drug of choice kind of switched over. Right. So now I, I overexercise and, and use it in a, 
maladaptive way. And I had to kind of back up and think like, okay, so what's going on in my life that even though I'm not picking up a drink, I'm doing something else that's harming me. You know, like I have to figure that out. And so I had to kind of take a step back from exercising and really evaluate, okay, I'm definitely going through a depressive phase. I think a lot of people are. February and March are really the highest months for people to have depression and anxiety. And, you know, I'm in between jobs or, you know, we're working through this investment with, with, with the reframe app and it's, you know, anytime we're working with a startup, like, you know, there's, it's a lot of instability, you know, and managing mm-hmm. multiple people and working within the recovery and the mental health space, it's very taxing, you know, like I would not choose to do anything else because, you know, kind of like what we said earlier, like waking up and getting to be of service to the recovery community is my passion. And I think finding purpose and getting to do something that I really, truly love and believe in every day as a profession, like a lot of people don't get to do that. But at the same time, like, you know, it does take a toll on a person, you know, you do feel a level of responsibility, you feel a level of, I need to be doing this, I'm on my phone all the time. I'm kind of, you know, that workaholic part of me has come out. And so um, finding balance can be hard sometimes, you know? Yeah. Absolutely. Well, and you have the insight now and the tools, and I think it's a constant calibration in our lives to be like, okay, how do I keep myself in my mind? It's like, how do I keep myself in that emotional green zone where I'm okay? Um, I, you know, we've mentioned it a few times throughout the podcast and I realized we didn't ever actually talk about it. So Will you tell us about the dry club, about your yes. podcast, the dry life and about every, you know, if people want to get in touch with you, which I'm sure they're going to want to follow up and learn more, like how can they find you? Yeah. So right now our main platform is Instagram, which is just at 1000 hours dry. And what it really is right now is an online support system and a community And it's a place where we promote and educate people on the alcohol-free lifestyle. And we are welcoming of not just people who are already sober, but people who are sober curious. So if you're somebody who is still drinking, but you want to know more, like give us a follow, you know, it's not just about for us um, being alcohol-free. It's uh, about anybody who's interested in it for any reason, you know, maybe your spouse is interested. And so you want to be supportive, but what you're going to find there is a lot of education, a lot of resources, a lot of tools. We're all about giving you, you know, like you said, everything to kind of fill up your sobriety toolbox. So, um, what, what we really do that I think, uh, most people know us for is, um, we do the thousand hours dry challenge, which is a 42-day alcohol-free challenge. Kind of similar, you know, I'm sure people know a lot about Dry January, um, but it's just a challenge that we hold and we hold it um, a couple times a year. We actually just started a new round on March 1st where we, um, as a collective community, go alcohol-free for 42 days. So that's for everybody. You can already be sober. You can already be a couple days, you know, alcohol-free. And we also like to remind people it's okay to have a slip up. So if you're interested in joining late, or if you have a drink or two during that 42 days, it's as long as you are getting up the next day and saying, you know what, I want to continue to do this challenge. That's what's really important. To make it accessible, yes. to make it not a barrier to entry if people are not quite at that. Yeah. Point and yet. it's, you know, it's like any, it's like a diet, right. Or saying I'm going to cut out this, or I'm going to cut out that. Like I'm, I'm doing this, uh, uh, what are they called? I'm, I'm having a lot of inflammation. So I'm having to cut things out of my diet to try and figure out what I'm eating that I, that's not good for me. So, right. I'm supposed to be going gluten-free, but it's really hard to just go gluten-free <laughs> When I was like, I had been gluten free before, now I'm eating gluten again. So going back, it's really hard. And, you know, sometimes I'm like, fuck it, I'm going to have a piece of bread. (laughs) And if I do, I don't want to be like, oh no, I have to start all over. Like my journey's ruined. All of my hard work and all of the progress I made is somehow, you know, gone. That's not true. We just kind of, we use these 42 days 
and and really try and push. You know, if you're thinking about living an alcohol-free lifestyle, try doing those 42 days because you're going to start to see the benefits of somebody who does get to live or who chooses to live an alcohol-free life. Um, and we talk all about those benefits weekly. So we like to tell you, you know, what week one benefit, what's week two, three, and so on. And, and it's really, you know, it's not just about, oh, um, I'm saving money or I'm, I'm losing weight. It's about, you know, how is your liver functioning doing better? You know, how is your skin, which is your, your body's biggest organ? How is that, you know, benefiting? Are you more hydrated? Yes. Like there's so many benefits to just even taking a break from alcohol, you know, um, even if you know, you know, I'm not, I'm not interested in being sober long-term, your body can really benefit and really rejuvenate a lot in those 42 days. You can learn a lot about yourself. And, you know, I think it was like 80 or 70% of people who did a 30 day challenge and went through and actually they said that they continued to have conscious drinking for up to like a year afterwards. So it really changes the way that you see drinking and you realize I don't have to drink in all these social t- so, like situations. I don't need a, you know, a glass of wine every night because it's part of my nightly ritual or when I cook, you know, a lot of the times people don't even realize it's just part of your like ritual and your habits. Um, it's not necessarily this emotional thing, you know, where, oh, I'm always drinking because I'm feeling this certain way. It's like, sometimes it's just as automatic as brushing your teeth if you drink often enough. Yeah. And so it's breaking up that cycle um, and telling your body, okay, I'm going to try something different and realizing, wow, you know, like you said, I've, I'm sleeping through the night and I'm not getting up or I'm not waking up with anxiety. Um, my energy levels are higher. Or if you're someone like me, if you're really a fitness junkie or you're interested in losing weight and stuff, like highly recommend because there's no way that you are operating at 100% for your movement, for yoga, for, you know, like you said, CrossFit, whatever. Um, if you're drinking, because it, it can take up to 24 hours for alcohol to leave the body, if not more. So even if you don't have a drink that day and you say, oh, you know, well, tomorrow I'm going to go run this off. I'm going to go spin this off. You still have alcohol in your body. You're not able to, you know, work at your maximum capacity. Your body's not metabolizing things in the same way. Your body's not burning fat in the same way. So, really it's just a hindrance to everything genuinely, but it, it's a, it's a safe space. And we, we have an accountability guide that you can print out and kind of just, you know, guide you through the 42 days, really simple visualizations, little lists, um, little suggestions and daily tasks that we recommend you doing. If you really want to take it seriously. And we also have an app that you can use. Um, we partnered with an app called reframe, um, which will kind of give you a little bit more structure. Same thing. It's a lot of daily tasks. Um, it's a lot of um, learning and little daily readings. And, you know, it only takes maybe five minutes out of your day, but uh, it's training your mind to do something different, right? And you're getting to learn while you're doing it, which is super amazing. Like knowledge is power. Um, and you're also building a community, like you're getting to meet other alcohol-free people um, and seeing what it's like. Like there are so many cool individuals that I've met through this online community who, um, you know, are very much like me, you know, because I think that's another stigma that like, oh, sober people are boring or they're old and they're this and they're that. And it's like, you'd be surprised that like a, a big chunk of the online sober community is young people, you know, and, and, yeah, and there's a universe totally. of people out there who've chosen not to drink and really cool men and women that you would love to yeah. know. And we and we also have chapters because I, I felt it was really important and I knew, you know, it's good to have that great big large support system. But you know, when it comes to things, I think um when you're going through something hard or when you really need people to relate to, um to find people who are even more like you. So it was really important for me to have, we have a women's page, we have a men's page, we have an LGBTQIA page, we have a BIPOC page. um, And these are all run by people who are actually in those communities and who actually identify as, um, as, as those chapters, you know, Um, and we're working on meetings. And so it's really an all encompassing community but it it's just about you know being supportive and being positive and realizing that there's a, a better way of living 
Um, and it's free and you know, you're going to be supported and not judged no matter if you choose to stay, if you choose to go, if you come back and forth, you know, you're always welcome. It's really a, a revolving door. Awesome. Well, I will link to everything in the show notes and thank you so much for taking the time and having this conversation. Of course. It was amazing to be on here. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hello Someday podcast. If you're interested in learning more about me, the work I do, and access free resources and guides to help you build a life you love without alcohol, please visit hellosomedaycoaching.com. And I would be so great if you would take a few minutes to rate and review this podcast so that more women can find it and join the conversation about drinking less and living more. Addiction impacts all of us. Addiction's consequences run through all of us. From ourselves to our loved ones and through our communities, addiction creates so much loss and grief. My name is Dwayne Osterlin, and I'm the host of the Addicted Mind podcast, a show featuring personal stories, expert guests, and vital information about addiction and addiction recovery. We'll talk with leading treatment providers to discuss the latest research and treatment options for this devastating disease and advocate for mental health awareness. We discuss topics like the importance of creating a community of support to helping loved ones to some of the latest research on psychedelic medicines. The Addicted Mind podcast has been about creating hope, listening to stories of many amazing people that have overcome addiction and are thriving. If you or a loved one is struggling with addiction, subscribe to the Addicted Mind podcast wherever you get your podcasts or check out theaddictedmind.com. New episodes every Monday. See you there.